I'd like to tell you a little bit about our work just uh, before we look at God's Word together. Uh, as was mentioned, I'm involved in theological education in Germany. I work with Greater Europe Mission. We've been actually with Greater Europe Mission now for 30 years. It's hard to believe. Uh, but first in Austria and now the last uh, 12 years in uh, Germany. And uh, a little bit of information about Germany. Many of you may not think of Germany as a, a country that is a mission field. Uh, but first of all, it's a very big country, the largest economy uh, in uh, Europe and the fourth largest in the world. Also the most popular, uh, populous country solely in Europe. Of course, Russia is a bit of a, it is in Europe and is a little bit more. Um, approximately 20% of the population are not ethnic Germans. That's the way Europe is becoming many more and more um, diverse with a whole lot of uh, immigrants coming in. It's very regionally diverse. Actually, there is no such thing as a German. There's Bavarians. That's the people you think about with the Lederhosen and all of that. Um, and, then, and then the Prussians, the Swabians, um, a very diverse group of people, actually, even within Germany itself. Um, they're very ashamed of their Nazi past. That's still a part of who they are. And they're therefore very skeptical of patriotism, except when it comes to soccer. And as you know, they did pretty well this last year. They're very proud of their um, soccer team and their car makers and their long intellectual tradition as well. Um, we live in a little town called Lich, uh, just outside of Gießen. I'll tell you more about our school in Gießen. Um, a community of maybe 10,000 people and uh, are involved in a uh, church there called the Christusgemeinde, about 100, 120 people that are there as well, and we are, have a few different ministries in that church as well. Why Germany? Why is Germany a mission field? Oops, we went too far there. Um, Germany is known, of course, as the land of the Reformation, but it is as thoroughly secular as the rest of Germany, of Europe in the meantime. Um, less than 5% of Germans attend church regularly. On an average Sunday, it'd probably be 2 to 3% of the population that would be in a church service on Sunday. So those uh, grand cathedrals you think of are pretty much empty. There may be uh, 20, 30 people there and probably um, very few under the age of 65 or 70. So it's a thoroughly secular culture in the meantime. And there are, in fact, more Muslims than practicing Christians in Germany. Few Germans under the age of 30 have even heard the gospel. And um, Eastern Germany, according to a study uh, recently, is the most atheistic region in the entire world. So that's why Germany is a mission field, and that's why we're working particularly to help in the area of theological education. I teach New Testament at the Gießen School of Theology, uh, which is right in the heart of Germany, as you can see, in Gießen. Um, and a little more information about the school. It was founded in 1974 as a Greater Europe mission uh, work. It's fully accredited as a theological university. Um, we offer a rigorous university level education with a three-year bachelor and a two-year master in theology. Uh, there's 140 students enrolled now. We have over a thousand uh, graduates in various uh, areas of ministry, including and many on, um, in foreign lands. And uh, we're working toward theological renewal through an evangelical commitment to the authority of scripture in a country that desperately needs that. Here's 
the family, as, I, as was said, uh, three are here, my harem, as Monty called it, uh, my wife and daughters. Um, and uh, Tatiana is um, very involved in local ministry at the church, um, helping with uh, uh, small group ministry and uh, doing some mentoring and uh, 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 things along that line in the church. She also works half-time as a physical therapist in our community. Helena just spent a year um, in a mission uh, phase where she went to uh, South Africa with the youth with a mission, also worked in Turkey and even a bit in Kenya in this last year, and now she's going to Gordon College in the fall. And um, I can hardly read that quote, but uh, you can read it there, too. She's really excited about what the Lord has ahead of her. Uh, Adrian just received his um, German high school uh, degree called an Abitur in June, and he's off to work in uh, Nicaragua uh, with a group that uh, sponsors trekking tours, and the money for that goes to work with, small, with uh, street kids so he'll be half of his time in the mountains and half the times working with these, with these kids. Not sure what he's doing about that, but really excited after that, but um, excited about what lies ahead. And Emma um, was also spent a little bit of last year in Kenya helping her uncle Russ there and uh, likes little kids and works uh, with the uh, church community in that way. And um, uh, is not quite sure what's uh, uh, after high school and a little bit uh, concerned about that. She'd rather just stay a child, and we wish she could too, uh, but uh, she has to grow up and uh, uh, not quite sure what comes after that. So that's our family and our ministry, and as I said, we're glad to uh, share that with you. Now I'd like to uh, turn to uh, the Word of God and share with you from John chapter 17. We'll start by reading uh, that chapter together. Oh, and by the way, one other thing, if you'd like to receive our prayer uh, letters, we still do the old-fashioned prayer letters um, about two or three times a year. Um, just write your name and address and email address on there as well if you want, um, and um, give it to me, and I'll make sure that you receive um, uh, regular updates on our ministry. Let's uh, read John 17 together. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth, by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have comes, that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, 
but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. No one has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I've given them your world and the world has word and your and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be as one, be one, Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would allow us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Be with us by your spirit as we look into it together, we pray in your name. Amen. There's a story behind uh, this sermon, um, and it has to do with the fact that I was um, called um, to go to Cincinnati a few weeks ago and preach in a church of a good friend of mine whom I went to seminary with there. And uh, as we were discussing this, um, I expected that he would um, give me uh, freedom to preach on any topic I like. That's how it kind of works with missionaries. That's how it worked here. Uh, Brian said, preach on whatever's on your heart. Well, this friend of mine gave me a text and said, I'd like you to preach on that. Now, um, that's a little bit harder to do. You see, I think anyone, even even mediocre uh, preachers, can come up, come up with one good sermon that they share wherever they go. Um, uh, you can polish it up, you can dazzle the people and move on, but this time I had to actually come up with something new in a, in a text that was chosen for me. 
by my friend, and I actually tried to get out of it. It was on a series of prayer, and I said, you know, I've, actually, I've dealt with the Lord's Prayer. Could we do that? I already have a sermon on that, and I'm busy. He said, no, I'd really like you to do John 17. He didn't let me get away with my plan. It was a very clear assignment, and so I had to deal with John 17. And I have to admit, it was not easy for me to do. There are some reasons for this. First of all, theological. Actually, most biblical scholars avoid John. It's easy Greek and very hard theology. The stories are great, but the discourses like this one are sometimes tricky. Very simple in one way, and yet incredibly hard to crack. They're kind of like the Brazil nuts of the text. You know, you have to, you crack them and you at the end, it's just a mess. And I've sometimes felt that way about uh, sermons I've preached from John before. But it has more than just that aspect to it. Um, there's a personal element to this. My initial reaction to this text, as I reflected on it, was one of hesitancy, even aversion, if I'm honest. And you might, might ask, why? You see, that has to do with the fact that I've been trying hard over the last few years to unlearn a few pious habits of mine. One of those was that I realized I'm not as holy as I portrayed myself to be often and have become increasingly unsatisfied with this discrepancy. And about a decade ago, I guess, I noticed that my prayers sounded actually a lot like this one. They were full of bold indicatives and propositions sprinkled with references to God's glory and forgiveness and all of that. They sounded earnest and intense, but frankly, I was often mentally disengaged from my own prayers. I could, I've been a Christian for 45 years. I could pray these prayers and be somewhere else completely different. I, maybe you're not like that, but for me, actually, I realized sometimes that was a whole other side of my brain functioning, and I was someplace else. And I decided that I was going to pray simple prayers, telling God my hopes and fears, stating my requests, and avoiding pious phrases. In other words, I didn't want to pray like this. And after meditating on this chapter almost daily for several weeks in preparation for the sermon, and without making any progress on my issues with it, I finally admitted to God with fear and trembling that, dare I say it, I didn't like this text. Actually, that's also a, start of, uh, a step in my recovery from the plague of false piety. Uh, admitting to God when texts out of the Bible cause me problems. We can do that, you know, and I don't know. I just it never occurred to me in all those years that he knew anyway. Why didn't I just admit that I was having a problem with the text? So I did that, and then God and I had a conversation about this text. It went something like this. God said, so why don't you like this prayer? I said, because I can't pray like that anymore. God, well, thank me for that. <laughs> me, well, what do you mean? God, I never intended you to pray like that. This is not a model prayer designed to, be ser to serve as a template for your prayers. I actually gave you one of those, the Lord's Prayer. And in case you haven't noticed, it looks nothing like this prayer. Then what is this prayer good for, I asked. God, it isn't good for anything. What? God, 
I said it isn't good for anything. You make it sound like a piece of carefully crafted rhetoric designed to accomplish a particular end, more of a sermon than a prayer, kind of like your prayers used to be. But it isn't. It's a real, live, honest-to-God prayer. My son prayed it to me, and I happen to like it. So why do you like it, I asked. God, precisely because it is uniquely my son's prayer. It reveals his heart, and it flows out of his life and calling. Please don't copy it. Learn some lessons from it, finally, about what makes a prayer honest and real. Wow, I said, I never thought of reading it that way. God, really? How much did you say you spent on your theological education? <laughs> so we want to look at this prayer together under the title, How Not to Pray. Many people have seen that this uh, passage actually has a very simple structure to it. Jesus prays for himself in the first five verses, and then he prays for his disciples in uh, verses 6 through 19. And uh, finally, he prays for future believers in 17, 20 through 26. And we want to just follow that structure and learn some lessons about how not to pray and also uh, how to pray. First of all, we'll look at the lessons we can learn from Jesus' prayer for himself. And I would put the, uh, the, this way, we don't pray for glory. Um, as you notice in this first uh, part, Jesus' prayer is an unabashed request that his father would glorify him. This has to do with ancient Near Eastern concepts of glory. That is honor that is paid to someone who's in a superior uh, position. And within the Old Testament context, of course, God is on top and everyone gives glory to God. So it's probably a little bit unsettling and surprising to read this prayer if you come at it from the first time. First of all, within a Jewish context, because every Jew in Jesus' day knew only God gets the glory. Isaiah 48.11 says, for instance, God says, I will not give my glory to another. I alone am the Lord. So within a Jewish context, it kind of rattles our cage a bit. And in terms of modern sensibilities as well, I mean, we don't actually like people who are already stri always striving for their own glory to be um, uh, put on a pedestal by others. And so we wonder what's going on with Jesus here. But it is, I think, entirely appropriate that Jesus should do so, that he should pray that God would give him glory. First of all, because Jesus has authority over all things. I don't know if I have, no, that's, I don't have these subpoints here, but you can follow along. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, You have given me authority over all people uh, to his Father. If anyone deserves glory, in other words, it is Jesus. You see, John affirms that Jesus occupies the highest of positions because everything that exists was made through Jesus and everything depends on him for its existence. Here, of course, we come into contact with the mystery of the Christian faith known as the Trinity, that Jesus actually shares in the nature of God. And we're told in John 1, 2, for instance, that all things were made through Jesus, and that without him nothing was made that was made. And because of that, Jesus can rightly claim that, as he says here, all that the Father has is mine. You see, no one is superior to Jesus. He's the giver of life 
as he states in this prayer. And so he deserves glory. But secondly, Jesus' passion is not to just simply bring himself glory, but to glorify the Father. In verse 4, he says that he um, has brought God glory by completing the work he has done. He did so by portraying the goodness and the love of God concretely in the world. This was his work, and he did it gladly. At the same time, he knows that God is glorifying him, as he says. God the Father and God the Son glorify one another. And that's a very important concept because it shows us that the Trinity is not self-centered. This isn't about self-absorption or um, uh, narcissism or something like that. Um, each of the members of the Trinity, and here we have it with God, with the Father and the Son, is simply completely blown away with the beauty and moral perfection he sees in the other person. Um, God sees within himself beauty and is just amazed by it. And he offers praise and glory uh, within himself. Each of the members of the Trinity do, do this. So there's nothing selfish or self-absorbed about God's commitment to his own glory. Thirdly, Jesus is merely asking for what is rightfully his. In verse 5, he tells us, Now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had before you made the world. In other words, Jesus says he had this glory once before the foundation of the world, and now he'd like it back. Uniquely, uh, this is a uniquely Christian insight into the person of Jesus. He expresses the very glory of God. We read in John 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. This actually ties into an Old Testament concept. You may not be aware of that. It's not on the surface of the text. But when the Old Testament talks about glory, uh, we'll think, for instance, of Ezekiel 1.28, where um, Ezekiel sees God in heaven. And what he sees, actually, of course, no one has seen God. We know that. But he sees a radiance, a brilliance, a light that comes forth from heaven. And he calls that the glory of God. That actually has a, almost a technical meaning to it. This is the glory of God, the light, the radiant expression of God himself. And John equates this glory, this light, with Jesus. He says in John 12, uh, 41, after quoting Isaiah from where Isaiah looked at the throne of God in Isaiah 6, then John says, Isaiah said all these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. So Jesus is this radiant expression of God. He is the one who expresses God's clear uh, glory. Now, this at this point, I think it's clear that you should not pray for this kind of glory. It, you don't deserve it. It's not yours to ask for. It's uniquely God's and Jesus' prerogative. He has been given authority over all others. So this is not true of you that you have this glory. But what can we learn from this prayer? I would say we don't... Whoops. Uh, now I turned it off. There we go. Don't pray for glory, but do pray for your passion. This is what we can learn. We should pray our passion. You see, what strikes me about this prayer is that it reveals Jesus' passion, who he really is. He is passionate about the glory of God. 
So he simply prays his passion. It flows out of him. He doesn't have to work at this at all. This is what comes forth when Jesus prays. This might be a surprise, come as a surprise to you, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you can and should do this. You should pray your passion. One of the major confessions of the Christian faith, the Westminster Confession, begins, of course, with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that interesting? Those stodgy old Puritans were talking about passion here. We enjoy God. They understood that God has given each of us a unique set of gifts and affinities, which, when we put them into God's service, arouse passion within us. And if we let that go, then we are actually bringing glory to God by the way in which we live. So what's your passion? What has God uniquely given you? What lights your fire? For me, it's theological education in Germany. I get passionate about that. I love doing it. What's yours? Of course, it's right and good to pray that God might be glorified. But that is an abstract concept. And for me, at least, I need something a little bit more concrete. And so praying my passion reminds me that I can glorify God in that way. Let's look at Jesus' prayer uh, for his disciples, the second part of this in uh, verses uh, 6 through 19. And we learn a few lessons here as well. Uh, I would put it this way. We shouldn't pray for a ministry of messianic proportions and influence. In this section, Jesus reflects on what he has accomplished in his ministry. He has reconstituted the people of God. He didn't put it that way, but in 6 through 7, he talks about how he has revealed himself and God to those you have given me, and he's gathered a people around himself. This is a, a, it ties very, very much into the whole redemptive work of God, who at the very beginning had decided, I want a people who will be mine, and I will be their God. And of course, in the Old Testament, we read the story how that all fell apart because of human sin. But God did not give up on that goal. He sent Jesus, who has carried it out. And now he has realized it and created or reconstituted this people of God around himself. Um, and so that's what Jesus did. He came, he revealed God, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin to purify them so they could, in fact, be this people. And then he faithfully passed on the message that he had received from the Father. He says in verse 8, I gave them the words that you gave me. And uh, what was his message? What were Jesus' words? I think we can sum it up uh, as uh, follows. Believe in me and believe in him who sent me. That's Jesus' message, and there are several times in the Gospel of John where he says this or something very much like it. You see, Jesus, his person, his work, these were at the center of his own message. He himself was the main point of every sermon he preached, and he clearly predicated the attainment of eternal life on belief in his message and in his person. Thirdly, he kept all those who were given to him by the Father, according to verse 12. Now, this is the kind of language that often causes theologians to start 
debating things like predestination and eternal security. But I think the point here is really much more down to earth. Jesus chose a group of followers, especially the 12, and all of them were still following him, he says, except Judas. And in his case, his betrayal was in fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus knows that the success of his mission um, depends on the disciples he chose. And he's confident that he could finish his mission and pass the baton on to them. So the rest of the prayer is centered on his disciples. And it's very touching, I think. There's a note of realism about it, that they are going to face adversity, and yet he will be with them. There's a concern for their well-being, and there's a note of joy that is uh, throughout this section. You can feel that Jesus is satisfied with the work he has done in his disciples. Thirdly, he kept all those... Um, we, excuse me. And as, a, as a wonderful as this section of the prayer is, it's not the case that we can simply copy this prayer for ourselves. It's, again, the Messiah's prayer, and it's about the Messiah's ministry. Granted, some portions can serve as reminders to us to pray for those we are shaping and influencing, to be faithful in conveying God's truth to others. But at least one part of this prayer is clearly way beyond us, that of keeping all that God has given us. Jesus said, I have kept all who God has given us. You see, no one is entrusted to us in the same way that God entrusts people to his son. He is able to keep them. We cannot keep anyone. And we aren't responsible if they stay by Jesus. As much as we would like family and friends to be close to God, we cannot keep them. And we're setting ourselves up for heartbreak if we don't learn that lesson. It's Jesus that keeps them. We faithfully um, minister and pray, but we cannot keep the people. I had to learn this, uh, this uh, lesson in ministry several times with a deep disappointment that came with people who were with us for a while and then went away. But that's not our ministry. We are not the Messiah. What we should do is pray for a clear calling and the character to carry it out. We are not called to a messianic mission. We don't save anyone and we don't keep anyone. But God has called us to play a part in the Messiah's mission. We profit from Jesus' prayer, not by trying to be many messiahs, but by discovering God's calling and focusing on our efforts in carrying it out. Jesus was keenly aware that God, of what God had called him to, and he zeroed in on that calling. He prepared himself for it, and he never lost sight of it. And he didn't think a lot about what other people's callings were. You know, I think that's a problem for us. We're constantly comparing with others and wondering if our calling, our job, is of the same uh, impact and import of others. We shouldn't do that. I know this by a fact, it's already been said, you know, there are three of us brothers and, uh, who are in uh, missions uh, today, and, uh, and as was said, uh, 
One brother is doing the great work in Africa. That's Russ, you know, he's at this mission hospital. And I actually, one time, my mother had us, we were both there in her, home, in her town of Cadillac, and so we both had to speak, my brother Russ and I, at a service and tell about our work. And uh, I went first, and no, I'm, excuse me, my brother went first, Russ, and he um, got up there, and, uh, and first thing he does was throw some spearheads on the uh, altar that he had, you know, taken out of people's hearts and things. Uh, and uh, there had been a big tribal war, and then he'd operated and saved hundreds, and then many hundreds more came to the uh, Lord. And then he showed pictures of, you know, open-heart surgery, and he's kind of smiling there with the heart next to him. And... I couldn't compete with that, you know. I, after that, I had to get up and tell about my Bible study in Austria. And, and after the service, everybody up came up to me and said, Your brother is amazing. <laughs> well, he really is, you know. But uh, I've learned a lesson. You'll know, notice that I decided to go ahead of him this time. He's coming next week, and I'm long gone. And you can tell him how amazing I am this time. But anyway, uh, the whole point of this, of course, is that, I mean, we shouldn't compare, and we really don't, actually. Uh, God has called him to a great ministry, and, uh, but it's not my ministry, and I never do it very well anyway. Each of us has a place in God's kingdom, and it's about finding that calling and carrying out on that ministry. Thirdly, let's look uh, at Jesus' prayer for future believers. Um, we're told, uh, we have this at the, uh, uh, in 1720 through 26, where uh, Jesus uh, prays for those who will believe in the future. And uh, we, uh, I think, can learn a few lessons here. One, uh, on the negative side, I don't think we should pray for all the Christians everywhere. That's what Jesus does here, obviously. In this section, Jesus prays for us. He centers on around two things that we might experience the unity that characterizes God himself, that we might be one, as he puts it, um, uh, that we would be not, there would be no deviation from the norm of the gospel, that we would all be keyed in on that and following the Lord, listening to his word. And that's becoming very important as John writes his gospel toward the end of the first century. Certain heresies are emerging um, coming into the church that the church needs to be aware of. There's the temptation more and more to compromise. We see in the later um, uh, letters where people have kind of settled into life and, and things are going well. And John wants them to be clear on the fact that we have to be unified in our message and in our walk and with our, in terms of our goal. That's what he prays. And secondly, he prays that we would be aware of his love for us. This is a, really a wonderful thought that comes through here. I just love this section, actually. Jesus wants us to know that he really loves us. He yearns to be with us. Have we grasped that completely? Maybe we've heard it a little too often in Christian circles. Jesus loves you. Uh, uh, and we've heard that over and over. How about this? Jesus really likes you. Jesus wants to spend time with you. That's why I love the, perhaps my favorite story is the story about Zacchaeus in the, uh, in the Gospels, where Jesus says, come down, I, I really want to spend time with you. I really like you. I know nobody else does. That was true of Zacchaeus, but I do, and I really want to spend time with you. 
Well, you, should, you ask me, well, why shouldn't we pray like that? Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for unity or for our fellow believers. But it has, again, been important for me to avoid abstractions. When Jesus prays for all the Christians everywhere, it isn't an abstraction. He actually knows each one of them. And when he prays for them, it's a very personal prayer. When I pray for all the believers everywhere or all the missionaries or what have you, it becomes a pious platitude. It reminds me of a comic strip from Peanuts way back where Lucy tells Linus how she loves humanity. And Linus says, well, you know, you're, you're pretty mean to Charlie Brown. And um, she says, oh, well, there's a lot of people I don't like, but I love humanity. Okay? And that's how I often felt with my prayers. Um, it was this abstraction. But I had to admit, actually, that there were a lot of people I had problems with. And uh, actually play, praying for the ones I loved and then admitting to God that there were some that I was having a harder time loving was a more effective way of praying, I found, and made me actually yearn to love people more. I noticed this in my missionary call when I first went out to Austria. I was very convinced that I loved the Austrian people. When I got there, I found out there were many I did love. There was one in particular I loved. And there were quite a few that I had a hard time loving. And then I went to Germany and I learned the same thing all over again. And it's no different here. You see, even as missionaries, we're called to love our neighbor. And that's often a hard task that we have to work at. So praying uh, for the, all the people everywhere just doesn't work for me. I have to leave that to Jesus. I pray for those I know and love, and as I said, it forces me to be honest about the fact that I have a hard time loving some people. And I have to ask the grace uh, for grace to love more of them so that I will be truly concerned about their well-being and actually contribute to the unity that Jesus prayed for. Now, I, I, maybe you're better at this than, than I am. You, maybe you don't need that kind of remedial correction. There are people out there who really just naturally love everyone they meet. I have a sister-in-law like that. Wes's wife, Cindy, is that way, you know, and I um, just love when she calls or when Wes calls and at the end she'll um, say, you know, I, I love you and, uh, and I know it. I felt, you can feel it, you just feel so loved by my sister-in-law. And that would always give me a great feeling until one day I realized she loves everybody. It's no great honor to be loved by her. Uh, it just comes naturally for her. Um, but I have to work at it. And so uh, this prayer encourages me to, um, act, to really work on uh, loving and not just parroting a prayer. I don't know if your experience with prayer in general or with this one in particular is similar to mine, but if it is, I hope it doesn't take you as long to realize that we aren't supposed to simply parrot Jesus' high priestly prayer, as is often called, but to learn from it. We see Jesus praying his passion. We see him focused on his calling and concerned about those he loves. This is uniquely Jesus' prayer, and I am encouraged that he prayed it and is praying it still. And understood rightly, it has taught me much about prayer. I hope you too. Amen.